0: Welcome to the Surveyor Hub podcast with me, Marion Ellis, a chartered surveyor, coach, business mentor, and founder of the Surveyor Hub community. Each week on this podcast, I speak to surveyors and people in the industry about their careers, business journeys, and day to day work. Listen to their real life stories, step into their shoes, and leave feeling connected to the conversation. So today I'm talking to Dr. Samantha Organ. Hello, Sam. Hi. Now, I know I hesitated there actually. Do I call you
1: Sam, Samantha? Do you call yourself doctor? So, yeah. So I I do call myself doctor, mainly because I don't like being called Miss. It's uh, one of my buffers. (laughs) But Sam or Samantha, Sam for people who know me, typically, and Samantha for people who are less familiar with me. I prefer that. But I will answer to most things, including my twin sister's name so I answer most
0: things except myth. <laughs> <laughs> now, I've got to know you over the past couple of years, and it's been a pleasure. You've got a really interesting career, so I was quite keen to have you on the podcast, although we did talk, I think it's about two years ago now, when I did mm. the Women in Surveying Sisterhood Summit, and we had a, a really nice chat about, about careers. So a pleasure to, to have you back on. But Thank for you. those who are listening who have no idea whether you're a a doctor or whatever, do you want to just introduce yourself and tell people a bit about what kind of surveyor you are?
1: Sure. So I can't help with any medical emergencies. So um, do not ask at all and do not show me anything personal. I cannot help. Effectively, I am a building surveyor. I have a PhD, so I'm a doctor in philosophy. I don't know whether that's a good or a bad thing in terms of how useful I am, but um, it means that I studied very, very hard did my undergraduate, did some uh, postgraduate work as well, and then went on to a PhD. In a nutshell, so can I just ask you about this being a doctor,
0: mm. w- and what what is a doctor of
1: philosophy? What does that mean? Effectively, what a PhD does, and you get different types of PhD. You don't generally; it's not like studying an undergraduate. You drive it yourself, and some students will, postgraduate students will sign up for a. PhD on a set topic. Now I chose my topic. So mine was on energy efficiency, actually more specifically motivations for energy efficiency. And that was because I saw a gap in the research and in not just the research, but in the professional literature as well. We don't know a huge amount about what motivates people to improve the energy efficiency of their homes. And so I I did it part-time. I did it alongside working. And then there was one point when I had three contracts to pay my way but it means that you delve into it in more depth. You you choose your study, you drive it. You have to set it up in such a way that it will stand up to scrutiny. So you do several years. I did it in four and a half, which is uh, pretty quick for a part-timer. Usually that's the average for a full-time PhD, although we say it should take three years. Usually takes a bit longer. Uh, For part-timers, it usually takes between seven and eight years, but I did mine in four and a half whilst working and it was just a really interesting experience you get to sort of learn more about yourself as well as the actual subject you're studying you go through various benchmarks where you go through lots of different assessments where you have to defend what you're doing and if you pass those you can go on to the next stage and then at the very end you do a what we call a viva where you sit opposite a number of professors who are experts in their own career And they basically pull you apart and you do a bit of a a defense. Um, You're not supposed to be defensive, but you're supposed to actually be able to explain and justify your study. Now, actually trying to do that for four and a half years or or whatever uh, amount of time you've done it in, it's quite difficult to recall some of that information. But that's the whole point of going through it. And I was really really fortunate. I had some really lovely professors examining me, two external, one internal professor, and their job is to make sure that the work I've done is any good, it's appropriate, that it's my own work, and just give me a really hard time. <laughs> and that must be difficult because yeah, okay, you did it over
0: four and a half years, some people take take longer. yeah, but so much can change in that time.
1: It that's really can. Yeah, it really can. So um, effectively what you're doing, and I, at the time I was actually dating somebody during the PhD who was doing his PhD full time. And, and my worry, I suppose, at the time was, but what happens if someone does it faster than me, the, the study? And, and he gave me a really good piece of advice, which is as long as you do it better, <laughs> that's the main yeah. thing. I don't think actually it is about doing it better. It's about being clear about your worldview the chair you sit in when you view the research. So I took something called a critical realist approach. So I look for the underlying mechanisms. So that suited motivations, because you can't always see the motivations. You can be motivated without acting, uh, because there are other factors that can't come into play. We all know that. We all have life priorities, effectively. And so we might be motivated to go and exercise, but sometimes we might have children, we might have other things going on. So we put the of other motivations aside same sort of thing so I look for the underlying mechanisms in most of my research and so somebody might interpret my results differently if they came to it from I don't know other approach so an interpretivist approach or a constructive approach
0: so you've done this great piece of work on energy efficiency or rather motivation towards mm-hmm. energy efficiency and I think that's fascinating because we want people to be more energy efficient mm. but why would they they bother yeah you know, exactly. and that then affects for us as surveyors, how yep. we support people out there with their properties, how it then affects value, all of those things. Yep. What do you do with that research once you've you've done it? <laughs> Good question. So I
1: should be publishing. Um but it's bit- when you say publishing, is that in like a book
0: or an online or in a particular forum
1: <laughs> or so in academia, we tend to prefer to, well, I prefer to publish papers. I have found that quite difficult because I'm now part-time and so actually my time is quite restricted. So I did actually feed into government after the PhD. So I went and spoke to a Whitehall committee, which was amazing, amazing experience. And so it's about trying to talk about my research and what I found to as many different people, just not just publishing. So yeah, I don't necessarily have a huge amount of time to publish. I have published. Uh, my plan is to continue publishing. But as you said, things do move on. What's quite interesting is I haven't seen it moved on as quickly as people think. But yeah, it's about talking. So I've also sort of done an article previously for the Built Environment Journal, so the RCS journal. Um, and it is trying to get that information out there um, and just not hiding it under a, under a bushel, if you like, or just sort of not tucking it away in the depths of some kind of archive. Uh, it is about sharing that information. And at the end of the day, it is about how we understand people's motivations. And even if it, they look apathetic, actually, these are not, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, people are genuinely motivated to improve things, whether that's for energy bills, reducing those, whether that's also because they're, they're worried about the environment, whether they're trying to improve their comfort or the comfort of their family. There are lots of different elements for this. So if we can frame it in such a way that, we can inspire people to change the energy efficiency performance of their buildings because of multiple aspects, tapping into their multiple motivations, then actually it can really help. And we're really well placed for that because otherwise people just don't act because I don't know if you've seen how complicated some of these sort of green home grants are. Well, it it is. But it's not that simple.
0: Yeah. And I was about about to say that really resonates with me on a customer experience front. Mm. So for those listening to the, the podcast or who, who don't know, my background is in defect and valuation claims as a surveyor. And that led me into customer experience because mm. there are sort of two factors when things go wrong. One is how the customer or client was treated, the onboarding, their whole experience that leads them to be satisfied. And then there's the you know, surveyor that got it wrong, and why was that got it wrong? Yeah. And usually that's some kind of uh, employee experience, if I can mm-hmm. put it that way. Um, but you talking, you know, talking about well, yeah, people want to be more energy efficient, energy efficient, but they don't know how, or there are other pressures around, and yeah. that all comes back to customer ease. Mm-hmm. How easy is it to navigate these things? And you're absolutely right. You see adverts on on Facebook all the time for this. On spray in foam insulation which isn't great you know the green deal the funding the this that and the other you know it's it's just really complex and you look at it and just think so much money is being wasted on it all being you know an absolute mess when it Mm -hmm. it should be so much simpler and concentrating on customer ease and I say that a lot to the business coaching clients that I work with how easy is it for someone to do business with you to pay you to know what your services are you know we spend so much time explaining things mm-hmm. and it doesn't need to be be that complicated it
1: doesn't need to be complicated but if we then just sort of take that back a step and understand that people including myself we we don't like change we favor the status quo and we'll always overestimate potential losses and underestimate potential gains it's called prospect theory and so effectively as soon as we actually take that stance and we understand that and actually it makes it much more easy to understand the customer in terms of improving the energy efficiency of their home. They don't want people in their homes messing things up. They would rather just have a hassle-free life in most cases. You've got the you know, exceptions to the rules, such as the pioneers and those, that sort of thing. But my grandma's a classic example. So she could have more loft insulation. She's 94. And she really doesn't want any stove. She doesn't want a new boiler. She doesn't want anything because it just means disruption. She doesn't want mm-hmm.
0: it. Mm, Yeah. You mentioned your grandmother when we spoke uh, a couple of years ago. Yeah, (laughs) and she was quite an influence on you, on your career. Tell me about how you got into surveying and tell me about your your grandmother.
1: Okay. So effectively, my grandma has quite a dark humour. She's half Irish um, and she came from a uh, quite complicated background at the time. If if anyone knows about um, back sort of 94 years ago, whatever, um, you probably understand that Catholics and Church of England Protestants didn't, didn't mix. She comes from a Catholic Roman Catholic slash Protestant household. So that has skewed her kind of worldview quite considerably. But she's incredible. She raised five children on her own. Um, her, her husband died when my mum was 15, but they were already separated at the time. Um, so that's quite a feat at the time. And so she had quite a lot of challenges she faced. Her father was a a master builder, a carpenter by training, and she couldn't necessarily afford to replace things like windows. So she went to night school and she taught herself woodwork. And then my great-grandfather would go over and check it out and say, this is pretty good. So she's one of those people with an engineering mind. Her brother was a civil engineer, one of her brothers was. And so she's got very much an attitude of, you you don't have to do something if you don't want to, but if you have to do something and you want to do something, you just get on and do it. So she's actually quite an incredible person. I spoke to her this morning for my birthday, which was amazing. Uh, And she sent me happy birthday down the phone. Very nice. (laughs) Um, And look at at you, you're doing a podcast with me on your birthday. Look at you. (laughs) What a treat. (laughs) And then, yeah, and that probably that's probably been quite infectious in in the family. So my mum's got a similar attitude of she never said I couldn't do anything. So when I said I wanted to be a building surveyor, she was quite surprised, but she never said but that's not a, a girl's job, which is what I got elsewhere. So I think actually that's had a huge influence in some of my life choices. It's the case of if you want to go do something, sort of something similar when I was little. I decided I was going to play the double bass. So I do play the double bass. am not a bit rusty these days, but I was always told, but that's not a girl's instrument. Well, that's okay, because actually I don't believe instruments have genders. So <laughs> it, it's kind of, you, you see a theme through my life of, uh, just because I, I've been told I can't do it by somebody else doesn't mean that I'm going to listen to that. And actually the support from the family has been, been great. So I suppose I went to university Building survey and kind of fell into it. I didn't know much about it. fell in love with it. I would go and chat to my grandma about it or chat to my mum about it. When I spoke to my uncles about it, they, I always used to get a worse mark if I listened to their advice, which I thought was interesting because one of my uncles is actually a surveyor. Um, <laughs> so I've learned don't listen to them necessarily. <laughs> go and read about it. Go and talk to other surveyors. Go and sort of use your brain and think things through logically because actually, surveying is a logical, rational thing. And there are multiple sort of conclusions we can arrive at surveying. So there's no sort of just one solution, no right or wrong answer. That's usually a wrong answer, but you, you know what I mean. So I went to university, worked very, very hard, because I'd never come across any construction terms. So it was a bit of a baptism of fire. And I became really friendly with my lecturers, who were really supportive. So I think that had a huge influence on me as well. And I still stay in touch with them, even though some of them have retired and moved on and others I, st- I work with still, which is incredible. I went and lived in America and I worked as a bill spayer over there, which was quite a, a, an interesting experience. They don't have bill spayers per se. So I kind of shimmyed on into. A bit of engineering, a bit of consulting—that was quite fun. So I got to work on Smithsonian museums. I got to work in three national parks, mapping the waste and water systems of those parks, and also assessing the condition. Almost stepped on a timber rattlesnake. That's, um, it,
0: that's interesting, actually, that you work abroad, because I think a lot yeah. of surveyors who train in the in the UK they stay in the UK. You know, yeah. where, whereas I know even within the Sphere Hub, we've got quite a few people from France, from Australia. I don't think we've got any Americans in there. I don't think so. But if you're early enough in your career and the opportunity yeah. comes, you yeah. know, when you're, you know, obviously we're recording this in a year of a global pandemic where no one's yeah. going anywhere. But to think wider than that, you know, and the experience that you that you can get, and obviously, Absolutely. if you're a member of the RICS, it's a global organisation. Yeah. You know, so
1: there are so some things there. So what did you do when you came back from America? So I actually did it as an internship. So I finished my degree. So my visa expired. And I was kind of bereft about coming back because I'd settled. But I came back, finished my degree, and I went into industry. And the global recession had hit over here. So there wasn't a huge number of jobs, if I'm honest. But I did secure a a job, then decided it wasn't for me because it was a bit far away and, and that I wanted to be closer to home. Grandma was getting older and I wanted to be helpful at home. So I turned that down and did a bit of freelance work. I say Freelance, I mean contract work. I worked actually at a, a hospital, which of course is was another baptism of fire. Lots of different processes, lots of different stakeholders, absolutely incredible. And I have such respect for the NHS and everything they do. So yeah, definitely about some fire. So I worked with infection control. I worked with an interconnecting ward, which was from the nine built in the nineteen forties. So it had asbestos in. I had to refurbish it, but the adjoining wards all had to remain open. So you're immediately thinking about fire risk. You're thinking about dust. You're thinking about uh, disruption or use it so if you have the radio on and uh, it being intrusive on on people who are recovering. Lots of different things to consider. Mm. Um, I want some. I want. Some-
0: Judged at the UK Customer Experience Awards, I do it mm. every year. I love it because it's it's totally outside, you know, what I do in sure. the world of surveying, and you get to see so many different businesses and how they approach mm. customers and their work and things. And it's it's a fun day, but I I, I just enjoy it, so why, why I do it. And I think it was last year a group um, a company that won was actually the NHS Property Services. Amazing. And that was a real insight because it reminded me of all of these different organizations out there. They all have property related, you know, sort of services. Yeah. It's not awesome. I outsource them. They're really sort of unique positions of being able to mm. see to work with a, a particular kind of business or industry. On the subject of you know uh, of property and all the things that can that that can uh, and
1: try and get your head around as well how they operate so you can actually give them a refurbished building that works for them because actually if Mm. it doesn't work then it's not value for money and so trying to understand all the different stakeholders doctors pharmacists nurses everybody even the cleaning staff the, the caretakers they all have certain things that they need to be able to do get to or whatever and if if your communication skills aren't sufficient enough to be able to elicit that information then you're not going to provide the best solution so it was a really really good experience so after that I moved so I, I, I was offered a job at the university temporary job doing some research not academic research but actually to create learning materials is this the university you're at now yes so um, I was offered this sort of Temporary job. And I thought, oh, okay, so effectively, my contract was probably going to expire at the hospital. There was talk about it being extended, but it wasn't certain. So I decided to jump and uh, went into academia. And I worked from being a sort of a research assistant um, for a number of years, because, did technical things as well. So did a bit of filming and eventually did some sort of, if you like, some ad hoc teaching, some ad hoc lecturing. And um, got into lecturing that way. And that's when I sort of started going into becoming a a PhD student and all of that. So it's kind of been an interesting process. Once I got my PhD, I knew that I I really wanted to do some practical um, things again, practical surveying. And the company that actually gave me that opportunity was the National Trust. So they said, yeah, uh, we can see you're ready. We can see that you are a valuable asset. Um, we'd like to offer you the job. And it was a part-time role. And I've been there almost four years. So that's been a really interesting experience. I started as a building surveyor and I was promoted 18 months ago to a senior building surveyor, went through an interview um, and I was up against others who were external to the organisation. So it was a competitive thing and they did, again, take a chance on me. So I've been really fortunate. I I terrorised the Cotswolds As a surveyor, I go around all these different properties and you name it, it's not just sort of buildings and mansions that we we think of, but it's things like reservoirs and and the dams are particularly important because it's in a sort of cascading reservoir uh, in a valley. And if those dams will break, then there's a retirement village at the bottom of that valley. And so that would be high risk for human life. So no pressure at all, but it falls under the Reservoirs Act. So again, you're constantly learning. So it's not something i covered at university, the Reservoirs Act. Um, so I've worked with engineers external to the organisation, and I've done a lot of reading. And I'm a member of the British Dam Society now, and they do some incredible stuff. Don't always understand what they talk about, but who knew about sort of dams and all that sort of thing? I certainly didn't. And it, so it's been a steep learning curve, and one that I've embraced as much as I can. But then you've got the mansions, you've got bats. I just have to assume that all our properties have bats in. Actually, you know what? So, it sounds.
0: Oh, it, on the one hand, it sounds fascinating of all the you know you know we've all been around some national trust properties at some time or other Mm -hmm. and and i'm you know there's been some tv programs on restoration of buildings as well you know and and you see what goes into it and it must be absolutely fascinating but at the same time i'm thinking i've never heard of the reservoir act and the british was it british (laughs) dams association yeah and the responsibility with some of these really old buildings and the decisions that you make. I mean, I know quite a few surveyors that listen to this podcast, you know, aspire to get, get in, into conservation mm-hmm. and love doing that side.
1: But when you work in it, it's quite a responsibility. It can be. I think I'm really lucky. So I don't, I don't call myself a conservation surveyor because actually my expertise are in building surveying. And I have an understanding and appreciation of conservation. Absolutely, but I didn't do a master's in it. Um, I did a, a module at university in it. I'm really lucky because at the National Trust, obviously, they have the in-house expertise, so I can engage in those conversations. But my sort of the, the conclusion I arrive at is sometimes different to the building curator, for example. And we have conservationists, and they tend to be the ones that look after uh, more fabric things. So you're thinking about tapestries and and all that sort of thing, although they do get involved with things such as historic stone benches, believe it or not. So, yeah, uh, I've had a cow try and sit on a historic stone bench and broken it. So how (laughs) do we go about repairing it? (laughs) So And does that fall into buildings or does that fall into a collection so it's 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 interesting. Yeah, always fun and never a dull moment, but there's a lot to it. And I guess actually that's the skill of a surveyor
0: is not being an expert in everything and worrying about whether you know all the different acts and, yes. and regulations and things. It's actually about teamwork. And knowing who you can call on and having that Absolutely. network to, to, to reach out to, to get the job done and sort of having yeah. that vision and pulling the resources together. Wow, yeah. Really,
1: really important, really important. Mm-hmm. And it's also recognising as well, from my perspective, I think it's important to recognise the talent or the skills that we're going to need in the future and building on that and saying, okay, we're okay at the moment, but what's on the horizon? And pulling in the people that we might need in the future. Tell me about this
0: little award you won.
1: <laughs> okay, so I I won the Youngster Young, young Billmans of of the Year this year. Which RICS, is, yeah, yeah RICS Matrix. Ooh, so absolutely well incredible. Thank you. Yeah, I wasn't expecting to win. I suppose that sounds quite humble or naive, but actually, the Billmans of category is the second most popular category. So I was just happy to be on the final finalists list so that was incredible uh, it was such a shame that we couldn't be there in person but it didn't detract from the I suppose the I don't know the, the gratitude I have and the feeling of actually being recognized is absolutely incredible.
0: Yeah it was an online event this year I've judged at the awards. Um, How did you find it? Yeah it's really interesting I find it I, I mean, I, love, I, I judge in, yeah, you know, I mentioned the, the customer experience awards mm. and I, I judge in other things as well. I think it just, for me, I find it interesting and it broadens my horizons of, of what's out there. Mm. The, the Young Surveyor of the Year Awards, I find really, it helps me get connected to the younger surveyors mm-hmm. and, and their aspirations. And it makes me think about when I was a younger surveyor and I had all this energy and I just mm-hmm. wanted to get on and do a good job and get paid for it and and all that that enthusiasm and as you go through your career that wanes a bit Mm. (laughs) sometimes and you know life can be a bit jaded and you know Mm. rubbish things happen but you know when you see these sort of new these people coming through Mm. talking so positively and sharing the innovation and um, the uh, I don't know the just the creative ways of thinking that you know and and it is a generational shift. As I look back now, you know, the things that you can do with technology and the way you connect with people and and, and the confidence a lot of these people have when they come through. I, I just I just I just get a really good feeling yeah. doing it, which is why I enjoy doing it and I and I learn a lot about people. What I find interesting when whenever I I judge is whether people have sort of self-nominated mm-hmm. or have been nominated mm-hmm. and you know, when you put an application like that together, you you have to get testimonials and, and all of those things. And I remember when I uh, did my fellowship, FRICS application mm. a couple of years ago, and I had to, you know, write it myself and then go out and ask people for, you know, endorsements and yes. testimonials. And it was a right cringe fest thinking, oh, will anybody think I'm any good and ask? So I, I that resonates with me. I know what it takes to go out and, uh, and, and ask people. And I'm always really impressed when people self-nominate mm. because... I think sometimes people can take it as, well, you know, you're a bit arrogant and you're a bit showy-offy and you think you can go for it. It's, very you know,
1: British. It? Mm-hmm? it's a very British thing, I think. Very British,
0: yeah, it is. Yeah. But do you know what? I think we need to have that. We need to have that self-confidence because as yeah. we go through our careers, you know, we don't always get that those reassuring mm-hmm. signals or encouragement from our senior peers that we're on the right track and we're doing okay. Yep. And we need that encouragement and support. Mm-hmm. So it's really important. I think one of the life lessons I've, I've learned, and if I went, went back, you know, back in time, would be to hang on to that and build and develop that self-confidence and ditch mm-hmm. that in a, in a critic and imposter syndrome and yeah. or just be aware of those things and how I, they, they've they then shaped my career. But but self-nominated ones um, mm-hmm. for me always re- seem to ring truer and just much more authentic and they're always more of a, of a pleasant read because they there's tend to be written in the first
1: person mm. so did you nominate yourself i did yeah well hey there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um i think for me i self-nominated before i have to admit and i made it onto the finalist and that final finalist list in 2018 and i wasn't going to do it again i have to say i mean i, I was a finalist the woman of the future last year as, as well And I wasn't going to do it. And then I was on furlough and I was going through, been going through a bit of a hard time this year in some respects. And I thought, well, actually, if the worst case scenario happens and I'm made redundant, then actually, I think I'm going to need this. So that was the push for me. So I self-nominated. And as I said, I wasn't expecting to win at all. But I also think that actually I owe it to not just myself, It's more about owing it to my students, my graduates and all of those people who say, look, you can self-nominate. It's okay, And you need to champion the work you do. And it's not just the day job. It's everything we do. And I think it is about being less critical about blowing our own trumpets and being a little bit more American in that sense. And I'm not saying that we ought to be American because actually, Mm -hmm. we as British, we're great. But surveyors are terrible at actually singing their successes. And so if we can do that and we can start promoting what we do, then actually perhaps if we look at at the bigger picture, we can start actually making more of a reputation amongst, I don't know, schools and things like that to say, look, this is actually a really great career. Doctors, lawyers, teachers, they all kind of are the go-to professions. Why isn't surveying when it's such an interesting profession and such diverse profession? So it's kind of, yeah, on the small scale, it was me going, well, I'm going to possibly need this. But on the grand scheme of things, it's also about uh, promoting the profession through my network. I think that rings very
0: true. And that's something that came up on a podcast that I did with Malcolm Hollis a few episodes ago, where... You know, he talked about the profession needs to be better promoted and and represented because there are some amazing characters and out there, some amazing work that we do. And I guess it doesn't matter what membership organization you're a member of. You know, there are lots of different ones out there. It doesn't matter. They can only promote what we do so much because we are such a diverse range. And relying on someone else to promote it whether you're paying a membership fee or not, yep. for me is not enough. Yep. It, all start, it all starts with you. And there's a, a quote that I often say to people and by Arthur Ashe, the tennis player, mm. who said, start where you are, use what mm-hmm. you have, do what you can. And if you can influence one person by you know, encouraging them and providing some support in a forum like the Surveyor Hub, Facebook mm-hmm. group, by going into a local school you know, on a careers day, and yep. sharing what you do, you know, you only have to commit to one thing, one small thing to inspire mm-hmm. people, and that can change the trajectory, but also change the impression that people have yep. of the work that we, the work that we do, and, and that's why I think sort of mentoring is so important as well. Yep. You know, right now, students are really, and particularly in 2020, students have struggled with getting any kind of mentoring or, more importantly, shadowing experience. Yes. I spoke to somebody yesterday who and I asked him you know how's he getting on with finding someone to shadow lives in the Bournemouth area and he'd approached some uh, a small firm and the response he got was if you come out with me and I train you up then you'll take over my business and be competition and then I'll be out of business and you just think I think it's quite short-sighted so short so short-sighted you know there, there are many other options you know but, but people feel threatened, but even just, you know, shadowing or providing support for one job, yes. half an hour out of your week, it's like, really, exactly. does it, is it really that much of a commitment? So the more that we can do for people, you know, that everything we do represents us as, as surveyors, whatever flavor of membership or, or profession, you know, professional body we're, we're part of. So I think it's really yeah. important. Let me ask you about, you mentioned your, your students how have you found out as a lecturer this crazy year and, and and how has it been for them? Because I'm imagining that you've probably had to carry quite a load for them.
1: It's been tough and I've tried to stay positive since this happened. So things started changing in, in March, April and it's been a lot more work and being part-time, that's been a challenge. I think that from a academic point of view, I think that it's a lot more. I mean, it's, it's a bit of a dirty secret, the whole sort of mental health in academia. Uh, and occasionally it raises its ugly head, but it is it is taking its toll and I'm tired. And it's I've seen it across universities. It's not just my university. And I think universities are doing an amazing job in trying to support people, but you can't keep on overloading your staff with more and more work. You can't keep moving deadlines. And it, there's a difference between being clear with the guidance and the changing goalposts, which is constant with COVID anyway, but also recognising that it's going to take its toll physically and mentally on people. When it comes to students, that's also the same. I've noticed a big difference. So I've done some face-to-face sessions. So I, I lead on a particular module, but I also cover a whole broad range of modules. And so I teach from first year all the way through to a PhD. And I've noticed that... The lack of social interaction, I'm not talking about just sitting in class because we're doing that socially distanced. I'm talking about proper social interaction, getting up close with people. It's having a big impact and I've started noticing that grades when they come in, they're not as strong as I would normally see them at this point. And so I suspect there's less peer-to-peer learning going on. The support services, so the mental health, professions and all that sort of thing within the university, they are inundated. And so they're taking longer to get back to students. And then we're as lecturers getting past those students because then they need that support in the interim. So there's a lot more work for everybody. And also I am concerned about students. And the other concern I have is that I don't want the profession to then look at 2020 or 2021 and say, oh, well, you only got, you got, you got your degree during the, that period. Therefore, they probably went easy on you because actually it's a really tough year. And so I don't want the degree to be devalued or any of the surveying degrees to be devalued as a result. So I think that's a real risk. But yeah, I think we're all tired and it's only Christmas. I haven't finished my workload, even though I'm on, on um, my marking. So I haven't, I'm going to be working over my Christmas break. So I take annual leave over December. So that's not ideal. So you go into the new year tired and then you've got the onslaught of uncertainty for COVID in 2021. So it's going to be interesting. I think students are missing the interaction and it's not the same on camera. So I try to keep up with them. I did nominate a student this week for the Women in Property Student Awards and she's a mature student. And she did. She absolutely smashed her first year. Absolutely smashed it. Um, She went to university late. So she's. Just, I hope she doesn't mind me saying, she's, uh, but she's, she's just turned 50. She's got a young family. Well, young family. Her youngest is 16, so not that young. But the fact she's gone now, gone to university, she's smashing it. She has, isn't even thinking about it. And it goes back to that we're not seeing our praises. She has got 91% in one of her modules last year. 91%. And yet she can't get work experience. So there is a problem. And that I think that maybe some professionals look at it in the wrong way, which is, oh, you might take my job. And mm-hmm. you're good. well. Actually, the way I look at it is, if I'm bringing in somebody to give work experience to, even if it's for a day, I might learn something that they've learned that might help me innovate in my company that I wouldn't necessarily have if I hadn't given them work experience. Plus, anyone I've given work experience to, because I give work experience in industry as well they actually stay in touch and I expand my network. And so actually there are so many benefits to it, but she can't get, she can't get a placement and she can't get work experience. And I think that is absolutely incredible. Do you know, the,
0: and these are the things that are really annoying. So there's an amazing person with great potential and they just can't, just can't get on the on yep. the ladder. I think, I think in our industry, perhaps lots of, businesses out there we need a real reframe you know and almost to challenge ourselves I don't know maybe it's a some kind of weird and conscious bias type thing but we need to we need to reframe you know bringing in trainees or supporting people isn't a threat to our business. It's an opportunity. People who've got qualified or spent most of their years studying through 2020 Mm -hmm. aren't at a disadvantage. Actually, they've got some brilliant, resilient skills that they've developed. And despite everything that's gone on in 2020, they've still come out with the grades, still been able to do what they need to do. You know, there's some real reframe. And also for people who are struggling and taking the load. And it resonates what you were saying about having to help your students more than you perhaps sort of normally would in terms of people coming to you for support. I've seen that a lot this year with the Surveyor Hub. Yeah. You know, the number of people who surveyors who've come to me with their bag of worries and support. Mm-hmm. And as a human, compassionate human, of course we're going to try and help. Yes. But we need to look at look after ourselves.
1: Yeah, you know, positive that... ripples positive ripples if you look after yourself then positive ripples happen yeah. but equally because I'm naturally somebody who's always wanted to help students the fact that I I am in a position now to help them even more it's starting to take its toll a little bit and that I do not begrudge anybody that because I would still do that anyway but it's interesting to see the impact uh, and if I can't help them because I'm sort of maybe I've become ill then who is going to help them?
0: And this is the thing, you know, you can't do it by yourself. And this is where we've got to sort of work smarter Mm -hmm. and and use our networks to help people. You know, the number of people who come to me this year feeling that their businesses are going to fold because they can't get PI insurance. They're real things. They're real things that have kept me up at night worrying about some of these people. But you've got to reframe it and think, well, what can we do? Okay, I can't do something about it. But what I can do... Is referring exactly. to someone else to, to Lionheart to key contacts mm-hmm. at RICS on the ARP, yeah. you know, to lots of different other things. You know, yeah. not thinking about you know. On the one hand, I've got to protect myself emotionally mm-hmm. and, and and look after myself in terms of how I my own well being and, and mental health. And then sort of think, well, I well I can't not worry about what I can't do because I can't go in and save everyone like Wonder Woman or Superman. But I mean we try, like,
1: but we try. But
0: you know, I'm—I'd be a bit rubbish at that. You know, but you—but they're but thinking about what you can do, and that's why I'm thinking yeah. about these sort of these really important reframes that we yes. that we need to have. And for us, that that helps us build resilience and build mm-hmm. our network. And do you know what, most of it isn't really difficult to do. Difficult
1: I think it's do. interesting you mentioned Lionheart as well because actually they have, for the first time, started offering services for students, and they've had to go through various. I suppose a lot of tape a lot of um, Mm. policy tape but actually how amazing even though they are so busy themselves at the moment with the pandemic they are now offering an additional service for students and it's so needed and universities do have obviously their internal systems which are incredible I have to say but they are also sort of buckling under the load of it so actually just an extra service that Lionheart is now providing is going to be So useful. So, so useful. I'm really, really proud of what they're doing. Mm.
0: So what's next for you in 2021?
1: Well, yeah, it's a really good question. (laughs) Get through it, I think, (laughs) is the main thing. I did a research report for an an externally funded research report in the summer. So I'd like to kind of poke that. It sounds terrible, but poke it a little bit and see if I can actually publish it. I have to speak to the client about it, but maybe publish something out of that. And that's on the climate, so the carbon reduction potential of historic buildings. So absolutely huge, but I'd like to maybe take that on a bit further, take on the PhD. I don't know what my career is going to hold. I am currently on redundancy notice. And there are things that are, the current opportunities that are presenting themselves, particularly since uh, young surveyor so another reason why maybe people ought to think about applying for young surveyor themselves opportunities do arise out of it but I, I, I genuinely don't know what this year is going to hold I didn't know what 2020 was going to hold probably like the rest of us uh, I had a couple of ideas of where I wanted to be but they are so far removed from where I actually am now I want to make a difference effectively so my decisions will be based on that, about inspiring and, I suppose, engaging. And those are sort of my two words at the moment, inspire and engage. And just keep on flying the banner, effectively, because I think we all should be doing it. We should all be sort of shining a light on the amazing, incredible work we do, because actually we all do amazing work. We just don't think about it. We just crack on and and carry on regardless. It's our superpower. It's our superpower, yeah. (laughs) We can go, day job. Well, if it's a day job, then highlight that it's a day job. That's exciting. I don't know what the next step is, but I'm quite excited about that. that. There is a little bit of uncertainty. And, you know, that can be a bit exciting. Yeah. I think, exactly. it, again,
0: is a reframe, a bit of an exciting year, inspiring, making yep. a difference.
1: I have been invited to, to um, chair one of the breakout sessions for the Build and Surveying Conference in May. So that'll be a new one on me. But I'm really excited about that, so that'll be that'll be great. And RCS Matrix, I'm quite excited about what's going to happen with that. Uh, so I sit on the national board, and obviously we've gone through a lot of restructuring at RCS. So knowing how that impacts on Matrix, not just at a national level but a local level, and where we go with that, and I think that is also quite exciting. There's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of uh, upset as part of that restructuring. But if we can look at the bright moments, and that's what I try and do with any anything that I'm involved with, look for the bright moments, then actually those bright moments are super exciting. Yes. So look for those. Sam, it's been really
0: good to talk to you today. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you so much for inviting me on. It's been really good. Thank you. So thanks for listening to today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I really do love hearing your feedback. So please feel free to drop me a message you can email me at marion.ellis at blueboxpartners.com, or you can find me on social media at marion surveyor.